you get told a lot of advice, which is certain things you should have set up in a, in a scale-up. There's no one thing that is going to get you from there to there that you can kind of rely on or take you to there. It's a lot of just incremental improvements. I think I've always had that mindset of just take one step at a time. How can we just improve this little bit right now? Welcome to the summit by Fearless Adventures, where we speak to successful individuals about their journeys and their path to their summit. I'm Emily Smithers, Investor Relations Director at Fearless Adventures, and we're joined today by Tom Dunlop, a former Team GB badminton star and founder of Surmise, a tech platform which uses AI to help summarise legal documentation. Hi, Tom. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I've got to ask, because I'm a big fan of sport, your, your kind of journey, you know, starting out um, as a professional athlete. How much does that influence your mentality for everything that you set up to do in the future? Surprisingly a lot. I think one thing that I have realised, I think since I've started the you know, business and started to go down the, a different track than being an athlete, is the sort of transferable skills are, are massive. I think for me personally, I had that sort of background of, it's that nature-nurture debate. I think my dad was always very ambitious. He was very hard work and he instilled in me, you know, you've got to work hard for, for, for anything that you what do. What do you do? He grew up in quite what's known to be quite a tough area of Manchester, um, worked in breweries and then on the railway tracks and then ultimately worked for Cooperative Bank, actually, and then um, became quite senior in, in the bank. Um, so he was, was like a true sort of graft to get to where, where he got to. And I think he always made sure that certainly me and my brother and sister always had a, that kind of instilled in us to, to work hard. But that only got you so far because I'm very different to my brother and sister. So I think then growing up in an environment where I started to excel in sport, um, I played a number of sports, but badminton in particular. It's quite interesting that I wasn't competing for, for money. I wasn't, you know, badminton certainly isn't the, the sport to get into just as a tip <laughs> uh, if you want to make money. It was just about being the best and it was this kind of how can I become a champion. It started off how can I become the best in uh, kind of Greater Manchester, then the UK, then Europe. And it was very much kind of me driving that. And that was quite an interesting journey where that's probably shaped me more now about how I think about things because I've kind of got in the business world and I kind of look at people thinking, like, how do people not have this drive? Like, well, I, mm. I get up and I'm like ready to go and should do everything I can and some people just kind of plod along or and that's, that's kind of a, a very different thing that I had to adapt to. But I think it's, yeah, it's always been in me. I think it's um, that kind of natural ambition mm. has kind of been produced by sport, heavily influenced by sport. Um, but also there is that sort of, I think my, my dad did play a big impact. And do you think that you achieved what you wanted to achieve in the sporting world? There's a number of lessons I learned from being in sport. The biggest one, which I carry over now to, to business, is just having a, a purpose in, in life generally. Um, for me, it was, I always had the dream of going to the Olympics. That was my sole focus. But I always had this sort of backup plan. So I was in a law degree at the same time as being a professional athlete. So I was kind of sat there saying well, if, if I don't make the Olympics, I'm going to be a lawyer. And when I didn't do well in an exam, I'd kind of say, well, so, so I'm going to be a professional athlete. So I always had that kind of slight contradiction in my kind of life where I was going. I think when it got to a point, it got through the junior setup. So I was representing Team England. I was kind of traveling the world with a team. I had the choice, basically, do I go move to Milton Keynes when I finish my degree um, or do I pursue the legal route? And I think I found quite a big difference in the lifestyle of being an athlete at that point. I think talking about purpose... I thought I kind of lost my purpose a little bit because I was competing against kind of the Far East players who they were just better. They were just a lot better than, mm. than, than I was, if I'm honest. So I think at that point there was this kind of realisation of I've kind of probably got to the point that I can take this, which is 
you know, did great as a junior, broke into the seniors, represented Great Britain, which was, uh, you know, an amazing experience. But at that point, it was, it was time to find a new purpose, really. So, so yeah, I'd say I did achieve mm-hmm. everything that I was capable of. I think yeah. that's quite realistic in that. And how easy is that conversation? Because, you, you know, you're hedging your bets a little bit because you've got one path and you've got another path. Yeah. One path is kind of more defined. In fact, you're going to be an athlete and you're going to do this. The other is you're going to be a lawyer and you don't really know where that's going to end up. How easy is it to turn you back on something that, I guess, from a young age, your probably life was centred around? It was tough, if I'm honest. I think when I... Because it was kind of instigated by Great Britain, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. They were the ones who said to me when I'd done my law degree, uh, like, you're off the programme, basically. No, no, they basically said to me that no one has succeeded doing the law degree and become, like, an Olympian or Olympic medalist. Um, so it kind of made that decision to an extent for me, even though that's kind of the way I was, I was heading. So... Mm-hmm. I'm going is that particular time was tough because, like you say, I, I'd lost that part of my sort of plan. But I probably was going to make that decision anyway. But yeah, I think yeah. having it taken away from me was was a tough time. But I'd say that throughout the my career as a badminton player, I learned very quickly to kind of appreciate things. I think when I, from a young age I was flying around a lot of Eastern Europe countries in particular. And I remember these like small things have huge effects on your life. But I remember seeing some quite you know, towns that were in huge poverty. And mm-hmm. I was like a 15-year-old, 16-year-old in an England tracksuit walking through with all the latest stuff. And that, that moment really resonated with me for the, the rest of my life. It still is something I think about now where, like, what's, what's the worst-case scenario? Like, I'm confident in my ability that I'm going to succeed in everything I do. I have that sort of self, self-belief, that sort of underdog mentality that I'll always succeed in what I do. And that's kind of got me through it, really. I don't think it was ever a, a low point. I think mm. it was... I always put it into context around what other people go through around realistically I've, I'm not that bad you know <laughs> yes I'm not a great Britain bounce player but I still could be a lawyer like things could be worse kind of thing so. From that Team GB point you're obviously now founder of, of your own company when did that transition happen and, and how did that all play out? Over a number of years I guess so I when I actually finished law school I started up a business at that point so I um, and I was still playing for randomly for Geneva in Switzerland so I represented them for badminton. They had a professional league, believe it or not, which is quite quite good to yeah. fly there on the weekends. And what was and, the business? Uh, that was a comparison site for solicitors. So yeah. it was uh, it was great. Like the reason I did it was because I got rejected from training contracts. So the big law firms, I didn't have anyone who'd been a lawyer before in my family. So it was very much I had to kind of convince them that I was worth taking a chance on. And they all kept on saying, "You've not got any commercial experience." So I thought, "Well, I'll start a business and kind of show you." Um, so I did that, and then. Um, then I got an offer basically to join a sports management agency which represented footballers, athletes, and it was kind of the perfect transition of legal and sports. Um, they also had a law firm, so I trained in the law firm and qualified, and then quite soon after I went into being an in-house lawyer. Um, and I was drawn to tech anyway. I mean, that was kind of like why I did the business. I think that was I had a kind of mind for tech. So the next few years I worked for kind of fast-growth, scale-up software businesses, working close with founders, but through that growth stage, went to the exit and then kind of found another one, did that three, three or four times. It was that really that spurred, you know, I'm, I was a, the lawyer, usually grew a team out, but it's quite obvious that the department in itself was really far behind from a tech perspective. You know, finance had their tool, HR had their tool, sales had their tool, legal, just manual, they have Microsoft Word and email and <coughs> printer, that's basically what they had. So I was always interested in thinking there's got to be a better way of doing the job that I did, um, particularly I was surrounded by software engineers. So I, that's when I approached my co-founder now and kind of said, this is what I'm thinking, is it possible? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say the rest is history, but that's, that's, that's how it all started. 
And I guess there's a lot of people who, who might work in industries that feel need disrupting and, you know, similar to that story. How important was it that you found that co-founder in that journey and, and what did they bring to the party that helped you to, to build that business? I think network generally is, is huge. When I look back now, um, some of the key things that have got us to where we are is, one, my co-founder, but our entire development team were from that same company. So um, the power of that network, my chairman and one of our key angel investors was the founder of that business as well. And even, you know, a, a kind of anecdote story, but I was listening to another podcast that uh, is quite popular. Um, and uh, Tom Blomfield was on it, who's yeah. the founder of Monzo. So I uh, reached out to him after that episode and basically said, you, you want to change to be a lawyer. And you basically got disillusioned because he was reviewing contracts and he mm-hmm. had to manually find the things. I was like, I've solved that problem. Um, got on a call with him, had a few meetings, and he's an investor in Samaya's now. So... I think there's there's a lot of that around my previous network, people I've reached out to. Mm. Because um, it's pain, isn't it? People experience pain. Absolutely. And yeah. I think that's the, the biggest thing for me is I, I had loads of ideas. I always had like a black book of ideas that were things that I could have done. I'd like to think I did the whole Joe Wicks thing before Joe Wicks. I was doing with Olympic athletes when I was doing the management agency. Yeah. The one that I was debating at the time of surmise was um, professional networking, but through car share. Sounds weird, but you basically okay. carpool with people <laughs> you actually want to network with. I, and I was getting really excited about these ideas. And then I said to a friend at the time I worked with, I said, oh, summarising contracts, that was there. And he was like, you should do that. But because it was my problem, yeah, yeah. I kind of made it sound quite trivial. I didn't make it feel like it was a big problem for other people. But now, looking back, you soon realise the only way you can have that passion to drive sort of business forward and be a founder and actually take it to the nth degree is experiencing that pain. Because you've, you've got to be able to push through some hard times to be able to you know, make it ultimately. I guess particularly in stepping away from an employed job to launching your own business takes a lot of courage. Are there any sort of skill sets that you take from your former GB days into your business and that sort of helped you make that first step? Well, I think there's some general principles I took from being, from, from being an athlete, I guess, um, to, to work now. I think the importance of purpose is, is huge. You know, why you're doing it, constantly remind yourself why you're doing it and having that purpose. If you don't, it's very tough to, to push through. I think the sort of 1% mentality that I... I didn't call it 1% when I was an athlete, um, but some things that we used to do, you hear a lot of athletes say they used to go running on Christmas Day, I always used to do that, but then you kind of realise everyone else does that, so that's not really unique anymore. <laughs> um, I was talking to a, a friend who played for GB and um, talked about swimmers, how they get up at five in the morning, and their attitude to that was, I'd never do that. So I was immediately like, right, I can get an advantage over you. So I started training at five in the morning. So this was 1% for me. It wasn't really loads of extra hours, but because of the time, I was mentally stronger than that that person so I knew when I competed with them I'd, I'd beat them mentally so that's something I'd talk forward and take so it still do it? I said I get up at that time in the morning because my kids probably jump in on my head you get told a lot of advice which is certain things you should have set up in a, in a scale up but the reality is when you're kind of compounding growth you're, you're doubling the size of your team every year you know we're talking about office space before when your office space is now you know 10 times the size as a shared desk we had um, in the early days. There's no one thing that is going to get you from there to there that you can kind of rely on or take you to there. It's a lot of just incremental improvements. I think I've always had that mindset of just take one step at a time. How can we just improve this little bit right now? Mm-hmm. And that's been huge. And it's, our, it's key to our culture now. And you talked about raising money for the company. What was, I guess, that journey like for you and any challenges that you saw in that? Because you hit, you hit the car crash of the markets didn't you yes yeah we yeah. literally went to market in about april time which was when everything was fine 
and about three weeks, two weeks after we started, the, the kind of tech world crashed. Mm-hmm. How much did you adjust? Have to adjust um, expectations. I think yeah, a lot. I think um, particularly more from the US angle, if I'm honest. So yeah. we were looking at the US for for investment. Obviously, we had even people like I mentioned Tom earlier that yeah. um, the the sort of American mentality about the multiples valuations. Mm-hmm. We were never really setting out with that we're going to achieve that, but we were still having conversations that that were quite. I guess towards the more racing multiples, mm-hmm. um, but we got an offer quite early on, and we we took that offer, stayed with that throughout the whole process. And from that sense, it didn't really change much. I think it was more about the peripheral conversations, particularly from the US angle, completely dropped off. Mm-hmm. But it's a huge distraction. I mean, I think once we were locked in for that offer and who we're going to go with, we just kind of pressed on with trying to run the business and, mm. and, and not let it distract us too much. Mm. And what was the most important thing for you in finding an investor? What were you looking for? I think a lot of VCs and investors, um, you know, talk about the value that they they add. I think for us, I wasn't necessarily looking for a VC that promised a load of value. I think from an angel investor perspective, in the early days, that was massive, and I think that we got a really good angel investor who has been probably the most influential on certainly our journey. From a VC, it was someone who was really passionate about the business. I wanted to share the table with someone who wasn't just looking at a spreadsheet, who wasn't just thinking about the numbers, actually understood the problem. And also network. Network was quite big. As I've experienced, network massively helped. And I think when we go to either Series B or Exit or you know those later conversations, having a, a company that can show they've got those connections and show they've got businesses that have done that um, you know, helps. And how many people are in the team now? About 40 at the minute. And how have you found that process of scaling, scaling from up. you and your co-founder to 40 people? It's um, it's an interesting one. I think we're at the kind of point now where like we, the, the initial kind of 10, 20 people are all, all almost like mini founders, mini entrepreneurs, and you want them to be that very generalist, very sort of, they could turn their hand at anything and, and they'd probably succeed. I think the next from kind of 40 to like say 100, 150 is going to be like really focusing on on, on that kind of specialist skill set and less about the more generalist entrepreneurial kind of passion-led hire which is something that i obviously react very well to but i think i'm trying to, trying to back away from that now but mm. the culture is an interesting one the culture has been really strong i think the one percent everyone got behind but i think we really make quite a big deal about how we're driving kind of this we have a, a grow mindset we call mm. it but it's through the one percent yeah when i was when i found it i found up to 50 was the best part mm. 52 100 a strange was the strangest growth step yeah because okay. you start to have so many different relationships different cohorts different groups and you lose control of it as a founder and the kind of culture is set by everyone else yeah and you have less kind of i wouldn't say less exposure to people coming in but you start to have less relationships because you know every time you bring someone in you are kind of one step away almost exactly yeah. so 50 I, I loved up to 50 50 to 100 was very very interesting a lot of mistakes were made there well, I feel like that for me is one of the best things that we've done. Uh, it's one of the hardest things for me personally to let go of some of that control, but I think yeah. we got a management team in very early. So our management team is very strong for the size that we are. Um, but part of that is to try and preempt or get ahead of this next phase where you're relying on other people to set the culture. You're relying mm-hmm. on that second tier of management as well to really set the tone. I think we'll, we'll see. I think we're set up quite well, but at the same time, um, I'm very conscious of it. I think it's something that, yeah, we need to be careful Last question from me, probably yeah. the hardest. Ooh. Summarize this conversation. <laughs> Go on. Oh, I don't think there's a tool for that. that could be <laughs> I think for me, the key things that 
something I've learned or I've taken, I mean, again, this isn't um, necessarily applicable for everyone, but is is the importance of purpose, I think, is in, for humans, never mind, um, just in work, that, that that's huge. Not looking for silver bullets and, and really trusting that kind of 1% mentality. It sounds easier than it is to actually practice, but that that has been huge for us. And I think then that's that kind of, which we just touched on, the third series, actually, the importance of network where they're empowering your people to carry that culture forward and, and scale that team so it's not just kind of very founder-led. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely three big things that I've taken away or learned on this journey anyway. I guess to anyone who's got that little black book of ideas that you talked about, what advice would you give to them? I wrote a relatively controversial article where I said I don't think there's anything such as an entrepreneur. The idea of that was I think people can have a very entrepreneurial mindset, which is a mindset you get into, which is always thinking about how you can, I guess, uh, do things better. And you can have great, some of our best employees have a great entrepreneurial mindset. And everyone has that friend who has the black book that has all these ideas. A founder is something very different, in my view, to a, someone who just has an entrepreneurial mindset. So I think the first thing is, like, make sure you've got that entrepreneurial mindset, which if you've got a black book of ideas, you probably have. A founder is, for me, someone who has that more grit, that determination, that ability to take a risk. If you don't have that, then look for co-founders or a group of people that can surround you that that provide that. You need that someone who's going to run through walls for that business, particularly in the early days. Um, and you might just be the ideas person, which is fine, but I think you always need that to be to actually found a business. I think they're very two very, very different skill sets, and I think they're, they're quite contradictory. So that's what I'd recommend. And also don't think that it has to be an all, all or nothing decision. You know, I didn't jump into it. One day I was employed, the next day unemployed, had no salary. I, I did it as a side hustle for probably six months trying to build a prototype prove out the concept and then we looked for investment and then we took the plunge but it was ne- it never felt like a hugely risky decision at that point because we validated the concept to a point where it was probably ready to almost monetize or, or raise money which we did this journey that you're on you know a lot of times in the investment world and business world it's jumping through hoops to get from pre-seed seed series a b c d e i think last someone did an f series f a couple of months yeah. ago why not? Why not? You know, <laughs> all up to Z probably. Yeah. But it feels like a lot of the times it's, you know, climbing up that mountain to get to the top where you want to go to. How does that translate to an end aim in, in business? Because there's no number one. Yeah. You know, it's... Well, there is in an industry. In an industry, but there's, you know, there's, there's a big world out there of loads yeah. of different areas. So how do you set a target? Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think I... Um, I was thinking about this the other day about what would be my summit and mm-hmm. and... I think almost ironically, I think right now you could argue I'm on the summit in the sense that I have purpose. I've mm-hmm. got, you know, we're, I'm doing something that I feel passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, we're driving change in the industry. You know, so I'm passionate about the products because I felt the pain. Um, I think we've got, you know, I've got family, healthy family, friends. I've got a good circle. I don't feel in a financially horrible place, which I think some founders do sometimes. So I think right now, I'll look back at these moments and think this was a highlight of, of my career. I don't necessarily, certainly from a... a said after, after raising the investment. Not, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It sounds, it sounds not, and not, don't not mid-round. Not mid-round. I'd rather, uh, I'd rather be doing this from my yacht in uh, you know, somewhere else. But I, um, no, I, I think there's, there's certain goals I have to change industry. And this, I, we have like ultimate visions and then we have annual objectives we set to. But I think a lot of the monetary objectives and certainly Series B, C, D are very investor-led. Mm-hmm. They need those milestones because they fit in a spreadsheet and they fit yeah, in a certain yeah. thing that fits their pattern. I think for me personally, um, we're driving and disrupting change in an industry and I think I'm more passionate about that. 
the money and the investment is to scale certain things, obviously, to achieve that. So I wouldn't say we, we don't we don't have a Series B planned or that's not necessarily where we want to go to. I think it's, um, you know, this will last as well. In theory, this gets us cash generative and profitable. Obviously, that's what probably a lot of people's plans say when they when they raise Series A. Or So we'll, we'll, we'll see. I think right now it, I'm enjoying the journey, I think, and kind of get this, this group of really passionate people and driving them. And I'm also passionate about helping them personally mm-hmm. develop whatever they want to achieve. So... That's the journey that I'm on, but ironically, I could argue that I'm already on the summit. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I'm definitely going to get a, a game of badminton, and I think you might beat me, but we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll give it a go. We'll give it a go. I'm, I kind of fancy myself, so I'll let everyone know how we how we get on with that. That's good. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today on the summit. Um, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And thank you for listening.